Hello, and welcome to the Boy to Sleep podcast, the podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. My name is Teddy, and I'm going to read a story from an old book, not one that is particularly interesting, but one that is boring enough to hopefully help you get to sleep. On tonight's episode, we're going to read from North and South, which is a book by Elizabeth Gaskell. It was first published in serial form, 1854-55, and then in volume form in 1855. I love bringing out episodes of the Boy to Sleep podcast because it helps people get a good night's rest. If it's helped you, please leave a comment and leave a review in the podcast app. It really does help me reach other people who need to get a good night's rest. In the meantime, lie back or sit back and enjoy getting sleepy. North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, Chapter 1 Haste to the Wedding Wooed and married and are, Edith said Margaret gently, Edith. But as Margaret half suspected, Edith had fallen asleep. She laid curled up on the sofa in the back drawing room in Harley Street looking very lovely in her white muslin and blue ribbons. If Titiana had ever been dressed in white muslin and blue ribbons and had fallen asleep on a crimson damask sofa in a back drawing room, Edith might have been taken for her. Margaret was struck afresh by her cousin's beauty. They had grown up together from childhood, and all along Edith had been remarked upon by everyone except Margaret for her prettiness, but Margaret had never thought about it until the last few days, when the prospect of soon losing her companion seemed to give force to every sweet quality and charm which Edith possessed. They had been talking about wedding dresses and wedding ceremonies, and Captain Lennox and what he had told Edith about her future life at Corfu, where his regiment was stationed, and the difficulty of keeping a piano in good tune, a difficulty which Edith seemed to consider as one of the most formidable that could befall her in married life, and what gowns she should want in the visits to Scotland, which would immediately succeed her marriage. But the whispered tone had latterly become more drowsy, and Margaret 
after a pause of a few minutes, found as she fancied that in spite of the buzz in the next room, Edith had rolled herself up into a soft ball of muslin and ribbon and silken curls and gone off into a peaceful little after-dinner nap. Margaret had been on the point of telling her cousin of some of the plans and visions which she entertained as to her future life in the country parsonage where her father and mother lived and where her bright holidays had always been passed, though for the last ten years her aunt Shaw's house had been considered as her home. But in default of a listener, she had to brood over the change in her life silently as heretofore. It was a happy brooding, although tinged with regret at being separated for an indefinite time from her gentle aunt and dear cousin. As she thought of the delight of filling the important post of only daughter in Hellstone Parsonage, pieces of the conversation out of the next room came upon her ears. Her aunt Shaw was talking to the five or six ladies who had been dining there, and whose husbands were still in the dining room. They were the familiar acquaintances of the house, neighbours whom Mrs Shaw called friends, because she happened to dine with them more frequently than with any other people, and because if she or Edith wanted anything from them, or they from her, they did not scruple to make a call at each other's houses before luncheon. These ladies and their husbands were invited, in their capacity of friends, to eat a farewell dinner in honour of Edith's approaching marriage. Edith had rather objected to this arrangement, for Captain Lennox was expected to arrive by a late train this very evening, but although she was a spoiled child, she was too careless and idle to have a very strong will of her own, and gave way when she found out that her mother had absolutely ordered those extra delicacies of the season, which are always supposed to be efficacious against a moderate grief at farewell dinners. She contented herself by leaning back in her chair, merely playing with the food on her plate, and looking grave and absent, while all around her were enjoying the mots of Mr. Grey, the gentleman who always took the bottom of the table at Mrs. Shaw's dinner parties, and asked Edith to give them some music in the drawing room. Mr. Grey was particularly agreeable over this farewell dinner, and the gentleman stayed downstairs longer than usual. It was very well they did, to judge from the fragments of conversation which Mrs. Margaret overheard. I suffered too much myself. 
Not that I was not extremely happy with the poor dear general, but still, disparity of age is a drawback, one that I was resolved Edith should not have to encounter. Of course, without any maternal partiality, I foresaw that the dear child was likely to marry early. Indeed, I had often said that I was sure she would be married before she was 19. I had quite a prophetic feeling when Captain Lennox and here the voice dropped into a whisper. Margaret could easily supply the blank. The course of true love in Edith's case had run remarkably smooth. Mrs. Shaw had given way to the presentiment as she expressed it, and had rather urged on the marriage, although it was below the expectations which many of Edith's acquaintances had formed for her, a young and pretty heiress. But Mrs. Shaw said that her only child should marry for love, and sighed emphatically as if love had not been her motive for marrying the general. Mrs. Shaw enjoyed the romance of the present engagement rather more than her daughter. Not but that Edith was very thoroughly and properly in love. Still, she would certainly have preferred a good house in Belgravia to all the picturesqueness of the life which Captain Lennox described at Corfu. The very parts which made Margaret glow as she listened, Edith pretended to shiver and shudder at, partly for the pleasure she had in being coaxed out of her dislike by her fond lover, and partly because anything of a gypsy or makeshift life was really distasteful to her. Yet had anyone come with a fine house, a fine estate, and a fine title to boot, Edith would still have clung to Captain Lennox while the temptation lasted. When it was over, it is possible she might have had little qualms of ill-conceived regret that Captain Lennox could not have united in his person everything that was desirable. In this she was but her mother's child, who after deliberately marrying General Shaw, with no warmer feeling than respect for his character and establishment, was constantly, though quietly, bemoaning her hard lot in being united to one whom she could not love. I have spared no expense in her trousseau, were the words Margaret heard. She has all the beautiful Indian shawls and scarves the general gave to me, but which I shall never wear again. She is a lucky girl, replied another voice which Margaret knew to be that of Mrs. Gibson, a lady who was taking a double interest in the conversation from the fact of one of her daughters having been married within the last few weeks. 
Alan had set her heart upon an Indian shawl, but really when I found out an extravagant price was asked, I was obliged to refuse her. She will be quite envious when she hears of Edith having Indian shawls. What kind are they? Dally, with the lovely little borders. Margaret heard her aunt's voice again, but this time it was as if she had raised herself up from her half-recumbent position and were looking into the more dimly lighted back drawing room. Edith, Edith, she cried, and then she sank as if wearied by the exertion. Margaret stepped forward. Edith is asleep. Is it anything I can do? asked Aunt Shaw. All the ladies said, poor child, on receiving the distressing intelligence about Edith, and the minute lapdog in Mrs. Shaw's arms began to bark as if excited by the burst of pity. Hush, tiny, you naughty little girl. You awaken your mistress. It was only to ask Edith if she would tell Newton to bring down her shawls. Perhaps you would go, Margaret, dear. Margaret went up into the old nursery at the very top of the house, where Newton was busy, getting up some laces which were required for the wedding. While Newton went, not without a muttered grumbling to undo the shawls, which had already been exhibited four or five times that day. Margaret looked round upon the nursery, the first room in that house with which she had become familiar nine years ago. When she was brought, all untamed from the forest to share the home, the play and the lessons of her cousin Edith. She remembered the dark, dim look of the London nursery. Presided over by an austere and ceremonious nurse, who was terribly particular about clean hands and torn frocks. She recollected the first tea up there, separate from her father and aunt, who were dining somewhere down below an infinite depth of stairs. For unless she were up in the sky, they must be deep down in the bowels of the earth. At home, before she came to live in Harley Street, her mother's dressing room had been her nursery, and as she kept early hours in the country parsonage, Margaret had always had her meals with her father and mother. Oh, well did the tall, stately girl of eighteen remember the tears shed with such wild passion of grief by the little girl of nine, and she hid her face under the bedclothes in that first night and how she was bidden not to cry by the nurse because it would disturb Miss Edith, and she had cried as bitterly, but more quietly, till her newly seen grand pretty aunt had come softly upstairs with Mr. Hale, 
to show him his sleeping little daughter. Then the little Margaret had hushed her sobs and tried to lie quiet as if asleep, for fear of making her father unhappy by her grief, which she dared not express before her aunt, and which she rather thought it was wrong to feel at all, after the long hoping and planning and contriving they had gone through at home, before her wardrobe could be arranged so as to suit her grander circumstances, and before Papa could leave his parish to come up to London, even for a few days. Now she had got to love the old nursery, though it had been a dismantled place, and she looked all round with a kind of cat-like regret at the idea of leaving it forever in three days. Ah, Newton, she said, I shall think we all be sorry to leave this dear old room. Indeed, miss, I shan't for one. My eyes are not so good as they were, and the light here is so bad that I can't see to mend laces, except just at the window, where there's always a shocking draught, enough to give one one's death of cold. Well, I dare say you'll have a good night and good light and plenty of warmth at Naples. You must keep as much of your darning as you can till then. Thank you, Newton. I can take them down. You're busy. So Margaret went down laden with shawls and snuffing up their spicy eastern smell. Her aunt asked her to stand as a sort of lay figure on which to display them, as Edith was still asleep. No one thought about it, but Margaret's tall, finely made figure in the black silk dress which she was wearing as mourning for some distant relative of her father's, set off her long, beautiful folds of gorgeous shawls that would have half smothered Edith. Margaret stood right under the chandelier, quite silent and passive, while her aunt adjusted the draperies. Occasionally, as she was turned round, she caught a glimpse of herself in the mirror over the chimney piece and smiled at her own appearance there. The familiar features in the usual garb of a princess. She touched the shawls gently as they hung around her and took a pleasure in their soft feel and their brilliant colors. And rather to be dressed in such splendor, enjoying it much as a child would do, with a quiet, pleased smile on her lips. Just then the door opened, and Mr. Henry Lennox was suddenly announced. Some of the ladies started back, as if half ashamed of their feminine interest in dress. Mrs. Shaw held out her hand to the newcomer. Margaret stood perfectly still, thinking she might yet be wanted as some sort of block for the shawls. 
but looking at Mr. Lennox with a bright amused face, as if sure of sympathy in her sense of his ludicrousness at being thus surprised. Her aunt was so much absorbed in asking Mr. Henry Lennox, who had not been able to come to dinner, all sorts of questions about his brother, the bridegroom, his sister, the bridesmaid, coming with the captain from Scotland for the occasion, and various other members of the Lennox family, that Margaret saw she was no more wanted as the shore bearer, and devoted herself to the amusement of the other visitors, whom her aunt had for the moment forgotten. Almost immediately, Edith came in from the back drawing room, winking and blinking her eyes at the stronger light, shaking back her slightly ruffled curls, and altogether looking like the sleeping beauty just startled from her dreams. Even in her slumber, she had instinctively felt that Lennox was worth rousing herself for, and she had a multitude of questions to ask about dear Janet, the future unseen sister-in-law for whom she professed so much affection, that if Margaret had not been very proud, she might have almost felt jealous of the mushroom rival. As Margaret sank rather more into the background on her aunt's joining the conversation, she saw Henry Lennox directing his look toward a vacant seat near her, and she knew perfectly well that as soon as Edith released him from her questioning, he would take possession of that chair. She had not been quite sure for her mother's rather confused account of his engagements, whether he would come that night. It was almost a surprise to see him, and now she was sure of a pleasant evening. He liked and disliked pretty nearly the same things that she did. Margaret's face was lightened up into an honest, open brightness. By and by, he came. She received him with a smile, which had not a tinge of shyness or self-consciousness in it. Well, I suppose you are all in depths of business. Ladies' business, I mean. Very different to my business, which is the real true law business. Playing with shoals is very different to drawing up settlements. Ah, I knew how you would be so amused to find us all so occupied in admiring finery. But really, Indian shawls are very perfect things of their kind. I have no doubt they are. Their prices are very perfect too. Nothing wanting. The gentlemen came dropping in one by one and the buzz and noise deepened in tone. This is your last dinner party, is it not? There are no more before Thursday. No, I think after this evening we shall feel at rest, which I am sure I have not done for many weeks at least. 
that kind of rest when the hands have nothing more to do and all the arrangements are complete for an event which must occupy one's head and heart, I shall be glad to have time to think, and I am sure Edith will. I am not sure about her, but I can fancy that you will. Whenever I have seen you lately, you have been carried away by a whirlwind of some other person's making. Yes, said Margaret, rather sadly, remembering the never-ending commotion about trifles that had been going on for more than a month past. I wonder if a marriage must always be preceded by what you call a whirlwind, or whether in some cases there might not rather be a calm and peaceful time just before it. Cinderella's godmother ordering the trousseau, the wedding breakfast, the writing the notes of invitation, for instance, said Mr. Lennox, laughing. But are all these quite necessary troubles, asked Margaret, looking up straight at him for an answer. A sense of indescribable weariness of all the arrangements for a pretty effect, in which Edith had been busied, at supreme authority for the last six weeks oppressed her just now and she really wanted someone to help her to a few pleasant quiet ideas connected with a marriage of course he replied with a change to gravity in his tone there are forms and ceremonies to go on through and so much to satisfy oneself as to stop the world's mouth, without which stoppage there would be very little satisfaction in life. But how would you have a wedding arranged? Oh, I have never thought much about it, only I should like it to be a very fine summer morning, and I should like to walk to church through the shade of trees, and not to have so many bridesmaids and to have no wedding breakfast. I dare say I am resolving against the very things that have given me the most trouble just now. And that concludes the readings from tonight's book. I hope it's made you relaxed and a little sleepy. You're always welcome to tune in to one of the other episodes, and I'm sure that's going to make you feel a little bit drowsy. Until next time, good night and rest easy.